Welcome to The Brainstorm, a podcast and video series from ARK Invest. Tune in every week as we react to the latest in innovation and reflect on how short-term news impacts our long-term views. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Investment Management LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. ARK and Public are unaffiliated entities and do not have a relationship with respect to either firm marketing or selling the products or services of the other. And therefore, ARK disclaims responsibility for any loss that may be incurred by public's clients or customers. The information provided in this show is for informational purposes only and should not be used as the basis for any investment decision and is subject to change without notice. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK and investors should determine for themselves whether a particular investment management service is suitable for their investment needs. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC and or show guests and are not endorsements by ARC of any company or security or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in the show may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. ARC assumes no obligation to update any forward-looking information. ARC and its clients, as well as its related persons, may, but do not necessarily, have financial interests in securities or issuers that are discussed. Certain information was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information obtained from any third party. Welcome to episode nine of The Brainstorm. Today we're talking Bitcoin and Bitcoin Monthly, a publication from ARC Invest, as well as the hunt for AI computing and what CoreWeave is doing to secure more chips. Uh, we're joined by David Puel today, who's an, a Bitcoin associate at, at ARC, who is really, I feel like, changing the game with uh, on-chain analysis. So David, maybe you can just give us high level for, for all of us out there. What does on-chain analysis mean for Bitcoin? Um, yeah, so on-chain analysis, in my view, is a sort of new field of financial analysis where you can take the blockchain data of any given crypto asset and use that, transform it to get a sense of uh, this uh, demand and supply dynamics uh, and the inner economics of Bitcoin or whatever cryptocurrency you're analyzing. So um, as opposed to traditional assets, the ledger on Bitcoin allows you to get a sense of several other factors that usually are not visible in traditional assets, like the number of addresses, how much Bitcoin are on those addresses, uh, the time since any given Bitcoin last moved, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So with all that data, you're able to produce a set of metrics and indicators that are very easy to diagnose and read uh, while having a, a full sense of the economics of Bitcoin or crypto in general at any given time. And David, can you take us through the Bitcoin Monthly and some of the charts you have in that and just give a high-level summary of the Bitcoin Monthly? Because there is a lot of on-chain analysis in that document and that, you know, what you're looking at each month. Sure. Um, so for the month, we have a, a lot of um, the, the, the on-chain uh, activity in general looks um, 
neutral to positive, mostly positive, I would say. Uh, however, um, specifically this month, it was very significant to us the, the very low levels of volatility, realized volatility on a 90-day basis, let's say, are extremely low, as low as, uh, you know, never seen since the last quarter of 2020. Uh, to give you a context of what was going on at that time, that was uh, the period of prior that preceded the 2021 bull market that took us from the 20,000 area into the um, high 16,000 area. Uh, and so what do you think is driving this low volatility? Um, one, it's not unusual given the stage Bitcoin is at the moment. Um, relative to other cycles. So you usually see uh, suggestive, like what suggests to be uh, a global bottom marked by the FTX collapse November, December last year. And then you start seeing a lot of consolidation um, throughout the, the year following the global bottoms in Bitcoin. And after that, going into the year of the halving, which takes place uh, estimated April, of 2024, um, you usually th that that usually correlates with um, more emphatic and impulsive bullish moves um, during during that stage uh, of the more or less four year cycle. So right can now, can you just not... yeah, David? Quickly, can you just give a high level summary of what the halving is, just for those that may not be too familiar with it? Sure. Um, so the halving is. Uh, the day, uh, every four years or so, um, exactly uh, 210,000 blocks on the Bitcoin blockchain, um, the issuance of new coins gets cut, gets cut in half. So what you initially would see as, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin pulse of 10 minutes producing new Bitcoins to the market. Uh, initially, it was 50 coins every 10 minutes in 2010, uh, nine and 10. And then after four years or so, that was cut in half into 25, 12.5, and currently 6.25. Um, so it. we expect uh, that that's why it's called a halving, right? Um, issuance gets cut. And so then maybe now you can talk us through this next chart here that shows uh, Bitcoin liveliness. What, what is liveliness and, and why is this being flagged as bullish? Yeah, uh, so liveliness, in essence, the, um, if you recall, I, I, I mentioned how you can measure the time um, of dormancy of all coins. So if you take an aggregate of that, you can get a sense of what coins have moved in, in aggregate as percentage of the total supply. And what, what number of coins have stayed dormant over time? Um, right now, uh, after a peak uh, at about 62%, meaning that 62% of the coins of the total supply of Bitcoin have moved relative to, um, to the dormant ones, uh, we have seen a reduction of that and liveliness, meaning the activity of the network has come down back to 60%. And those levels are significant because, again, similar to volatility, we haven't seen them since the last quarter of 2020, which is the market conditions that preceded the bull market of 2021. So, David, here I, here I have a question because I get 
that makes sense, right? You're looking on chain, you're, there's less selling pressure. So I get that that's positive. Um, but for all those people out there who say, you know, wouldn't you want liveliness to show that Bitcoin's actually being used and that there's merit to these assets? So how, how do you balance, you know, liveliness with it's actually useful? Um, and the, you know, whether that's bearish, that liveliness is going down. No, um, I'll, I'll reply in two phases. First, um, usually what we've seen in the, uh, the, the inner economics of Bitcoin is Bitcoin behaving first as a store of value, meaning very high volatility appreciation over time. Volatility is reducing for sure, uh, but that's one of the factors that allows for its second use, which is medium of exchange, right? And potentially then unit of account and fulfilling all the functions of money um, down the line. As of now, you, you could perhaps claim that uh, we're seeing um, um, still the primary use of Bitcoin as store of value, but increasingly so um, medium of exchange as well. Um, so it's what you usually want to do as the second point, what you usually want to see is a high amount of coins being locked up and never moved by uh, long-term holders. And at the same time, whatever coins remain in activity, you want to see them churning and trading hands a lot. That suggests the network activity that you're implying, right? So you, you can have the, the best of both worlds with a strong holder base using Bitcoin for store value. And then therefore um, limiting the, the available supply of the asset in the market. And on the other hand, a lot of activity on chain um, with the remaining coins being traded uh, widely. That's usually the most bullish scenario. As of now, uh, the strong, we have a, a strong holder base historically, and we're seeing increasing um, transaction volume relative to, to last year which is also a healthy sign, but uh, uh, we expect it uh, to, to, for that to improve over the, you know, the last quarter of this year into next year. Got it. You have to, you have to hold all your coins before you can spend them, Sam. Um, David, what about this last chart where you're, where you're looking at the price action of BNB? Can you give us a, a, a rundown of what the BNB token is? And then maybe we can talk a bit about Binance as a whole and some of these uh, you know, potential risks out there in the market. Yeah, uh, so um, despite the, the bullish markers that we see um, in, in perhaps in price and on-chain activity, um, given the, the, what happened last year with Terra, Three Arrows, um, FTX, we always want to keep an eye on potential gray or black swans in the market that may differ from the main narrative that you may see on chain. Um, right now, we're especially keeping an eye on Binance um, and, and next Huobi. But as it pertains to, to Binance, we're seeing a, um, a very a multi-year long, perhaps two years and a half, uh, descending triangle formation and the chart um, that has uh, demarcation line as support and uh, the 210 USD price for, for BNB or Binance token. Um, now, we 
think that this line is very important because we have touched it a lot before and it seems to be a um, highly defended level for price action in BNB. And given all the regulatory pressure Binance is, uh, is under right now from the CFTC, SEC, DOJ, uh, we want to keep an eye on it um, in terms of the accusations that has been put forth by this uh, set of organizations. Um, and also, um, you know, the, the fact that it's an offshore, non-regulated exchange always uh, makes us more, most wary in, in terms of the potential transparency that the entity um, may showcase, right, historically. So, and so what's happening with Huobi now? Yeah, um, that's that's a, a new item that became more relevant over the weekend. Um, uh, apparently, there's rumors, uh, as of now, only rumors of, as of the time of recording, that um, few executives from the exchange have been arrested in China, I believe. Um, and also, if you look at the on-chain data and the um, balance on exchange from several crypto, cryptos like Bitcoin, USDT, and Ether in the exchange, the outflows have been massive pretty much since um, the peak in 2021. Um, people are... are emphasizing a lot of the, you know, 75 million of outflows over the last few days, I believe. But the exchange, especially since the crypto trading ban in China has pretty much been in a complete decline by every metric since um, since 2021 and 2022. So it wasn't as, um, um, it's not the, the brand is the, the, the newest of informations, you could say, but it's still worrisome given that, you know, it's another formerly ma major entity in the crypto market that seems to be uh, in major risk of insolvency um, or perhaps worst. Got it. Great. David, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you can read the Bitcoin Monthly every month. Go to our website, arc-invest.com. And David's putting out some excellent research in addition to that. Uh, so be sure to follow his Twitter. David, what's your Twitter? Uh, Deepwell Arc. There you go. Awesome. And Thanks, David. It, it, is, it is really crazy. Some of the metrics that, that uh, you've gone into, you're kind of uh, unpacking the blockchain in a way that I think will be looked at in... Uh, the future and people will be pretty amazed at at what you're on to. So if you're Thank interested you in going in the weeds, definitely check it out. Thanks, David. Thank you, David. See you guys. Thank you. Okay, Sam, let's jump to our next topic here. We have CoreWeave, which was formerly, so here's a nice segue. It was formerly a crypto mining company. Now it's turned GPU focused cloud service provider. And there's some interesting news surrounding this company. What is it? What's happening here? Give us the, the quick rundown. Yeah, so you said it, right? They've already been in a place where they had assets and then that kind of got pulled out from under them. They had to pivot. Uh, so they are doing cloud service providing with, with those GPUs. Uh, what's interesting is they just got $2.3 billion in debt financing um, to buy more GPUs. Uh, and the interesting thing here is that that $2.3 billion 
financing is collateralized with their existing GPUs. Uh, it's worth noting that the GPUs they're buying, right? So they're getting the newest chips from NVIDIA. NVIDIA is an investor in their company. Uh, and so people speculate that this is NVIDIA allocating supply of these chips, which are in great demand, um, to CoreWeave as a way to diversify away from Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. And, you know, we spoke about this before, but, right, uh, Tesla can't get enough chips. That's why they're building Dojo. Uh, the talk of the town in Silicon Valley is, you know, who, who has access to these H100, the NVIDIA chips for, uh, you know, the, the highest end chips out there. And this to me is concerning, right? <laughs> right. This is like the start of a bubble in my opinion, right? You're, you're taking a asset that, you know, depreciates extremely quickly. You're using that to collateralize a loan and you're actually buying more of those assets in return. And I don't know of a time when this has ended well. I'm not saying that this is the end right here, right? This is, I don't think so, right? But you know, you obviously never know. This just seems like unhealthy behavior, um, particularly when you see, you know, a narrowing of investment into AI companies and the AI leaders, uh, you know, going through the roof. And now this is to me an even further narrowing where it's, you're not even talking about the company, you're talking about a specific chip from that company that's now being uh, levered up. Yeah, I think three points stand out to me. One is just on, you know, how many times are we going to talk about a company shifting their focus from crypto into AI? I feel like that's happened a hundred plus times in the past six months. Like we have companies chasing hype. The second is the favoritism that NVIDIA is potentially showing CoreWeave right now in, you know, allocating these scarce chips to a company, you know, I think that in and of itself is a very interesting fact. And then the third is, to your point, how fast these assets can depreciate. You know, NVIDIA is known for accelerating performance each year in their GPU units. And so how long until these units are, you know, not performing in the way that CoreWeave may need them to? And so how do you, how do you, lever or you know leverage these assets i think it's an interesting structure to be able to you know finance on the back of these assets and i think an interesting point was brought up in the brainstorm on friday someone said you know this is not unique you know companies will borrow against assets that depreciate all the time and i think someone brought up airplanes but the difference here right is those assets are potentially most of those assets depreciate at a much slower pace you know airplanes can be used for 30 plus years if they're made well gpus we don't necessarily know how long these can sustain in the market at you know a competitive performance so that i think really stands out to me as a hey let's you know let's reassess this because this could be dangerous to your point. Like, I don't believe that this is the end. I think it shows the strong demand for AI, but if AI doesn't pan out in the way that most people think it will in the next few months or even years, what does, you know, the pricing of the GPU market then signal? And is this a self-fulfilling prophecy? You have AI demand coming in, 
GPU demand then comes in as well. The secondary pricing for GPUs, because there is a large secondary market for GPU units, that comes in. And then does CoreWeave find themselves in trouble because the assets that they've pledged have lost market value because the demand for AI that they had expected isn't materializing? So right. there are right. risks. And and right, the other thing is, you know, if this does work and nothing to say that, you know, off the bat it wouldn't work, right? You have N NVIDIA as the investor offering them the chips exclusive supply here. So maybe it works and they get comfortable with this. Uh, but oftentimes what we see happen is, you know, it works the first time, it works the second time. And each round you're like, oh, it worked. So I'm going to go bigger. I'm going to go more money. Uh, and that's kind of what builds up that leverage that leads to, you know, the ground falling out from underneath. So this right. is definitely something that I would keep a close eye on as companies are investing and chasing after the short supply of AI compute out there. Yeah, definitely. Okay, we're we were we're two topics this week. Uh, short. I think this is the first time we've had two topics, but that does allow us some time to uh, look in and and address some of the questions. Thank you, everyone, for the the code word pizza. Um, everyone that submitted questions, we picked out two this week that we thought uh, we could really dive in on. Um, and given you know we only have two topics, let's 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 get right into these. So Sam, one of the questions I think is for you. Um, you've been much more focused on this than anyone else at Arc, maybe aside from Brett. But on the superconductor news we talked about last week, this room temperature superconductor, how fast, this is the question, how fast will the super, if, if this is real, how fast will room temperature superconductors uh, be in the market and have real life applications? Yeah. And then maybe just to catch everyone up. So it seems as though there have been various replications of this. Still, some people think it's fake or, or whatnot. I think my take at this point is, you know, is LK99 the substance that the uh, Korean researchers put out the paper on? Is this the holy grail? It doesn't seem like this is necessarily the holy grail, but it seems like it's totally illuminated a new tech tree for people to explore. Um, and given that there have been, you know, some first stage recreations, it, you know, it's very promising and there's probably going to be a lot of uh, research and tinkering that goes on. And so, you know, when I was just looking at this, I think a useful timeline here is kind of looking at the plastics industry, right? Another material science type thing. And I thought it was useful just to note Gore-Tex, uh, you know, our favorite raincoats made out of that. Uh, the technology or the material science breakthrough for that was in 1969 and the first commercial orders were in 1976. Um, so, you know, that, that is seven years and I'd say that's fairly quick. There are people who resp <laughs> responded to that tweet and they said, you know, so much has changed since then. Shouldn't it happen faster? I think it's, it's possible. Um, but in, in my mind, that seems like a reasonable time frame if this really is something um, and again, you know, people will find out the inherent properties of, you know, LK99 or other similar uh, compounds, and maybe there are things in there that make it more or less difficult. Uh, but, you know, I think that's just a useful frame of reference for how long it could take to commercialize something. Sam, uh, I have a, yeah, what, yeah. What, before we get to, to the 
that question, just one follow-up question. I know we touched on this last week, but what would be some of the real world applications of a room temperature superconductor? Yeah, so I think there's applications in electric motors. Uh, People talked about, you know, distribution. And if you look, it's really, I think the losses on electricity distribution for the grid are in the five-ish percent range. And it's off, what I'll say is, Broadly speaking, with new technologies, and they're probably more expensive to produce at first, um, even with the efficiencies they give you, it's probably going to unlock new use cases. And that'll be kind of those first R&D applications as opposed to ripping and replacing, you know, the existing infrastructure that's already there and good enough. And so I could see maybe some electric motor application and super high power to weight ratio here. you know, maybe someone makes like a cool rail gun or uh, a maglev train. Uh, that'd be pretty cool. That'd be pretty big. I don't think that'd necessarily be the first. I'm going. <laughs> I'm going electric motor. I'm going electric motor as as one of the first applications. But we'll see, and that that'll change. So don't hold yeah. me to it. Nick, uh, this question for you. Your thoughts last week. We were talking about advertising revenue uh, and the landscape there, and. The question was, TikTok wasn't mes- mentioned. Is it not essentially a TV in your pocket and a much better alternative for shifting advertising video budgets versus Meta, which is still very much a social media platform? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I should apologize for not mentioning TikTok last week. I, I think this is absolutely right. Um, I think TikTok in and of itself is a disruptive force within social media it really did pioneer a new way to distribute content. And that was through, you know, AI recommended content. So as you're watching, it's picking up on how you interact with these videos and then feeding you videos that are in a similar vein versus what historically social media has done has focused on just a follow and feed methodology. So if Sam and I are both friends on Instagram and Sam is, you know, liking dog photos, it will then assume because we're friends, that I may like dog photos. TikTok flipped this entire distribution mechanism on its head when it introduced AI recommended content. And I think you've seen how big of a disruptive force it's been because every single social media company has now copied and replicated this distribution of short form videos in the same manner that TikTok introduced many years ago. And you see it in the numbers as well. You know, TikTok commands a growing portion of advertising revenue and the MAU base is, uh, I believe, well over a billion uh, users, which is, you know, in rarefied air when you look at, you know, the billion user platforms. So it's absolutely right. I, I'm i going to just hand up. I should have brought it up last week. It just slipped my mind. I, 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 I really admire what TikTok did to the social media landscape. If you can put all of the, you know, the rest of the story behind you, I think just, and when you look at the platform, the technology they introduced, I think it's, you know, something that we haven't seen um, in social media. You know, it came in, it disrupted the space, and now everyone's trying to play catch up. Um, so I think it's a, it's a, it's one to watch and it's, it really is pioneering new formats as well. It's continuing like what they're doing now with live streaming. Um, you know, they are pushing the boundaries within the social space. And I think to this question's point, um, it's not as much of a social media platform as say Instagram or some of these other sites. It's much more just an entertainment, um, 
platform. And that shows up in kind of how people tend to use it and for how long they use it. I think more people spend, if you look at the average time people spend on TikTok, it's much higher than most social media platforms. And I believe the last time I looked at this, it was actually categorized as an entertainment app and not a social media app in the app stores. I don't know if that's changed, but that was when I was looking into this originally back in 2020, 2019, that was the case. So I think they understood at the time what they had. It's not necessarily a social media site. It could be looked at as a TV in your pocket. Nice. Well, Nick, do you got a question for me we can use as the, uh, the word for next week's questions? Yeah. What is your favorite ice cream? Ooh. I'm going, I'm going cookies and cream. Cookies and cream? Cookies All and right. cream. Nick, you're, so you're, looking pretty, cream. you're looking pretty tan. Where, where, where are you coming from? I'm back in, I'm back in St. Pete. I had a, a nice run outside yesterday in, in the sun and, and heat. The heat wasn't as much fun as you know, the sun, but I appreciate that compliment, Sam. Thank you. Nice. nice. <laughs> <laughs> I did also, I, I'll just throw this out there. I, you know, I, I run a bunch. I'm looking for my new trainers. The ones that I always get now, all of a sudden, Asics is they've adopted it to like the giant foam cushion. That's what and I'm have. just like hocus. I I know, but it's like I don't want that. And then now they're charging 140. dollars I tweeted it out. Who's who's disrupting this? I just want like the Asics neutral trainer from like 10 years ago. It was fine. Let me get it for like 70 or 80 bucks. Who's making it? Uh, if you know of anyone in the shoe industry. Let me know. <laughs> yeah, so we'll we'll wrap on that and thank everyone for listening as always. Um, so please, yeah, uh, comment. Cookies and cream is the code word for this week. Uh, any questions you may have, and then tweet or comment at Sam your favorite running shoes so he can stop uh, complaining about these. No, not high- not favorite <laughs> not favorite running shoes. I know my favorite running shoe. I just want a, a running shoe disruptor. <laughs> Okay, there you go. A running shrew disruptor. That's what we need uh, everyone to comment at Sam. Uh, Thank you as always. That's our show. See ya.